You're listening to the Engage Work Faith Podcast, the 11th hour. And on this episode, we release part one of our recent event, Better Than Us, the impact of artificial intelligence. Let's join with Craig as he introduces our four panelists as they discuss AI and its impact on ethics, meaning, and even the Christian faith. Strap in and enjoy the ride. Well, welcome to tonight. Uh, my name's Craig Broman, and uh, if you'd like to get a seat, these seats up the front are free at this stage. Uh, so uh, there aren't enough seats for everybody to sit. So either you'll be standing against a wall somewhere, uh, leaning or leaning against a person who you came with. So feel free to take these seats up the front. Um, I work with a group called Engage Work Faith. It's uh, basically, it's a very unusual organisation that tries to bring the, um, the world of work and the world of uh, Christian faith together into the same space. And it's made up of a whole network of people uh, across South Australia as well. One of the things we like to do is to discuss uh, interesting topics that come up in the workplace. And one of those topics, obviously, for tonight is going to be artificial intelligence. And we love going into the public space we're very thankful that we can be here at Lot 14 tonight, um, thanks to their kindness and community, um, community approach to the way we're doing this. So uh, basically, how is tonight going to work? Well, uh, what we're going to do is I've got a panel here that I'll introduce to you in a moment. Uh, after we get to know the panel a bit, we'll move into some sort of general topics about uh, artificial intelligence. Then we'll take a little break, then we'll come back and we'll dive in a bit deeper into some of the more, uh, some of the implications of uh, artificial intelligence and where it's heading. And, uh, and then after that, we'll move to uh, Q&A time. And you'll notice around the room that there's a QR code, yet another QR code you say. So that QR code is, if you link to that, you'll be able to send a question to us. It's on the walls around the room, it's on the tables. If you're near a table, it's at the bar if you're going to spend a lot of time up there. Well, you know, the term AI um, was coined uh, way, way back in uh, 1956 at Dartmouth University in the UK at their summer school. And this was their definition, science and engineering of making intelligent machines. The science and engineering of making intelligent machines. And now, as we know, it covers a huge and broad spectrum of life, um, everything from farming, uh, through to hospitals and finance and our law courts and transport and IVF, mining, government surveillance, call centres, crime control, defence, language translation, matchmaking, if you're interested, and chatbots for lonely nursing home people. So it's, it's a huge, huge topic and it's on the, uh, there's a global race involved in this. You may know that uh, China and uh, the US uh, dwarf every other nation in terms of their investment in artificial intelligence. Australia, in comparison, um, even with those size differences, uh, has a very small um, uh, investment in AI. And that's why something like this and this place down here and the cluster of businesses uh, and entrepreneurial um, businesses that work here are so important. Most of that AI technology in the West, I don't know whether you realise this, but it was new to me, is owned privately by companies like Google and Amazon and Microsoft and IBM. If you go to the East, it's government owned, so it's quite different. 
My experience, I come from a humanities background, so if my microphone goes tonight, I haven't got a clue what to do. So I'm, I'm probably the Luddite here to, um, to work with this panel tonight and to answer questions, uh, or not answer them, but ask questions. Uh, but the thing is for me, I found this topic fascinating to, and as I scratched the surface of it and delved into it, the reason why it was so interesting for me was because it made me and it confronted uh, for me my own humanity, my origins, where I come from, what I'm doing, where I'm going, what my capacities are, what my destiny is, and how much I could re-engineer uh, what is essentially myself. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, over tonight. So uh, would you please welcome our panel? We've got Tanya, Luke, Tim, and Vicky up on the screen from Queensland. Please welcome them. Okay, well, Luke, I'll start with you. You're at the age of 27. Uh, you've managed to pack a lot into your life so far. Uh, after finishing your Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering, and it feels like um, this is your life a bit, but anyway, um, after finishing your mechanical, uh, Bachelor of Mechanical Engineering, you did a winter school over in Munich uh, at the Tech uh, University there. You've moved into multiple roles uh, in space, uh, art, agriculture, defence and more. You've got two prominent roles as the business manager um, with, uh, in space with the Australian um, Agriculture, uh, sorry, with the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and you're the director of ADEPT as well. So um, you, you're also a scholarship coordinator, uh, I noticed, um, for Australian Youth Aerospace and you're a young Australian space leader. Is that right? Okay, That's so it, yeah. clearly you're not sitting around on a Saturday night rearranging your sock drawer. I do that as well. Um, yeah. So <laughs> why so many hats? Why have you got so many hats? So many opportunities, I guess. Um, I don't know, I find it very, for a while very hard to say no. Every time one of these exciting opportunities came up or I saw a way I could make change, I just jumped on it where I could. Saw a scholarship I could apply for and went for it. But it's all just so exciting as well. Um, I mean, I was late here today, as you can attest to, because I was literally working on a program to get onboard processing of AI for um, on a satellite in geostationary orbit. Um, wow. it's, why would I say no? Sort of thing. Okay. okay. All right. Um, we'll come back to you in a little while. Um, let's move on to Victoria on the screen over there. Um, thanks for coming in and zooming in from Queensland. And if there's any young little toddlers that come across the screen, we understand that you're in a family setting there tonight, uh, Vicky. But um, you're a lecturer in systematic theology at Trinity uh, College in Queensland, and you've got a background in science. Uh, you work for the Western Australian government in science and innovation. Your later research was in neurodegenerative uh, disorders. You then took yourself off to Oxford uh, and you did a doctorate there in science and theology. Now, isn't that a little bit like trying to mix oil and water? What's going on there? Yeah, um, thanks, Craig. Um, I think you articulated already some of these questions about sort of technological enhancement. That's really my way into AI here. Are these questions about how do we, you know, the idea that we could use technology to make humans better and smarter and stronger and faster and, and why that's so compelling for so many. And artificial intelligence is a, a major 
part of that project. So I just find it, like you said, a really fascinating uh, subject because it opens up all those fundamental questions about what does it mean to be human and, and what does a good life look like? Um, and then from a theology perspective, it's just really great fodder for a theologian to, to engage with. Terrific. All right. Um, Tim, Dr. Tim Patrick down here. Um, sorry, that was Dr. Vic, uh, Vicky Lorimore as well. So you did your undergraduate degree in science. Uh, you worked as an experimental scientist with the CSIRO. Is that anything like a mad scientist or...? <laughs> I'll leave others to comment. So. Okay. okay, then you um, ventured into the world of theology. You completed a doctorate in uh, theological history. You're currently the principal at the Bible College here in South Australia, which is putting out people into the church and community leadership. Um, what, why, what, what's your interest in this discussion tonight? Why are you weighing in on it? Uh, I think I'm hitting the same theme as you and uh, as Vicky as well. Uh, that is... I don't have any particular expertise in AI as such. Um, it's not an area of my research. But uh, what it does and what fascinates me is it taps into all the big questions. So it seems to me that many of the questions that we'll discuss, uh, probably some tonight, are really the questions that human beings have always been discussing. And so we, uh, we might think, gosh, AI is raising all these issues for us. But I look at it and I think, no, these are the same issues we've always had. They're about identity, they're about security, they're about hope, they're about fear, they're about power, they're about control, they're about freedom. These are fundamentally deep human questions. And uh, as someone who is interested in Christian theology and Christian thought, they're the kind of questions we hit head on. So uh, for me, this is just a great space in which those age-old questions are getting a fresh voice. Okay, all right. And uh, Tanya, Tanya Lehman here, apart from being the Dean of the Law School at uh, Flinders University, um, you pursue research into automated cars and uh, the legal implications of this. This is going to fascinate some of us here tonight. Um, I noticed you're the member of the Australian Driverless Vehicle um, Initiative. So uh, excuse the pun here, but how did someone in the legal academic world collide with technology and artificial intelligence? Well, many lifetimes ago, I was a plaintiff lawyer uh, representing lots of people who had been injured in motor vehicle accidents. So I had a particular interest in that space and protecting vulnerable people's rights. And then when I went into academia, uh, since really back in 2010, I've been particularly interested in the intersection between law and emerging technologies. And back in 2015, November 2015, I had a student come to me and wanted uh, me to supervise them for an honours thesis. And they said, oh, I'm really interested in doing this topic. And I said, oh, that sounds far too boring to me. Uh, and I looked out my office window and could look down to South Road. And it just so happened that it was the day on which we were running the first driverless vehicle trials in South Australia. So I said, you should do something on that. Um, let's, let's craft a, a legal honours thesis around that. Um, and so I got very excited about that, uh, and so did the student. And within two weeks, she'd set up all of these things for me to look at. Then she decided to go off and do another um, topic, and I was launched on my way. Wow, okay. All right, so you can see there's, a, there's quite a variety of people here tonight with coming from different backgrounds. So it's going to be an interesting discussion. I hope that you've got questions you, you can ask this panel tonight. 
um, as we move on. But why don't we launch out and do some uh, sort of general things first. So, can, oh, sorry. So, can you tell us the difference? What's the distinction between narrow AI and uh, the more confronting artificial general intelligence that we keep hearing about? Maybe, maybe Luke, if you want to kick off, and any of the rest of you would like to say. I mean, the easy, the quick explanation is one exists and one doesn't to start with. But, okay. Um, which is which? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, so the one you'll see in the movies quite often is your artificial general intelligence, where we're starting to think about AI in terms of intelligence and the way we see each other as intelligent, right? Um, that's the AGI, artificial general intelligence. In reality, a lot of the work that we do um, that's happening right now around the world, um, I've never seen any successful work on AGI, um, is in what is generally termed as narrow AI. So the autocorrect on your phone, it can't learn how to drive a car. Um, it can't learn how to analyze images, it can't do any of those sort of things. It just learns words and how to predict what might be next in your sentence. Um, that's what it does, it does one particular thing and it might get better at that or it might get worse depending on what data is fed to it, but that's all it can do. Right? Okay, okay. Um, the, the rest of you, any, any not happy with that definition? Well, okay. except what I'd say is that really you read five different articles and five different articles will have a different definition of artificial intelligence. So there's not a commonly agreed definition and yeah. I think it's changing all the time. And what we thought was artificial intelligence 10 years ago, now we think is just normal. And so, and yeah. so that, you know, as soon as the computer can do, do something and we know that it can, well, it's, that's what a computer does. We're not thinking about it as artificial intelligence any longer. Yeah, I might add to that, the, um, if anyone's heard of the Turing test before, um, yeah, the Alan Turing, you know, invented the, um, the first computers. Um, no, that was back in World War II, they yep. were trying yep. to... Crack the Enigma code the from the Nazis. Yeah. Yep. Um, so he also developed a test which could basically say, here's how we would know, well, here's how we'd be able to say that a computer is intelligent. Like, if it ticks all these boxes, since then, there has been ways to sort of sneakily tick all those boxes and get it done, and people have gone, well, that was a rubbish test. Um, so it doesn't actually help us that much in understanding whether this, this computer was intelligent. I think the way they did it was just mimicking a nine-year-old rather than an adult, but it still ticked all the boxes. But So, yeah, like Tanya said, what we consider to be artificially intelligent or intelligent is going to change based on who you asked, where you read the definition. But get Okay, rough so the goalposts are basically changing as we're getting, as we're making more progress. All right. Um, now look, I, when I got into this, I, I found it difficult to understand some of the terms and I'm hoping that because you're at the Australian Institute of Machine Learning, you'll be able to help me with this. So, um, terms like machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, autonomous learning systems, they keep getting tossed around in the world of artificial intelligence and they also sound very human-like. Like they sound like they're mimicking the brain or they are like my brain. So. Um, can you just explain why do they use such human-like terms to describe them? So, leading on from what we were just saying about the changing terms across time, so if you went back to the 1980s, 1990s, what we'd call AI back then was largely what is now is referred to as expert systems, and then we have you know, sort of evolved through times, like to what we, we'd only call whatever is state of art at the time AI. Anything outside of that, we start saying, oh, that's not AI anymore. Um, machine learning, deep learning are the things that we generally say now. We class them as complex enough and state-of-the-art enough that we would call them AI. Machine learning, if we start looking at it now, is basically if you can write a bit of code right now 
um, I could write a series of if and if else whatever statements and get you know a car to turn the corners whatever like that when it sees a red light and those sort of things. But it hasn't really made any decisions itself. It's just gone through the, the code that I've written. Ultimately, we can make a machine learning model, which we just say, here's how you learn. That's all we do. We don't give it any instructions at all about what it's actually going to do. And then we show it tons and tons and tons of data so it, get, so it can learn the patterns in that data itself. Right? We basically tell it how to look for the patterns, and that's it. Okay. Deep learning is just that with more data, more computing power, that sort of thing. Um, deep learning sort of came around in 2013, 2014, where machine learning seemed to be reaching the point of um, decreasing rate of returns. People started inventing tensor processing units, another, basically think of your CPU, your GPU, and your computers, different type of um, processing component in a computer. And all of a sudden we realized that what, once you push past this little boundary, it ramps up again. Yep. The sort of returns you're getting, that's where deep learning started. Okay. Neural networks is sort of, this part of the structure of a machine, of particular machine learning, deep learning models. Um, yes, and it is based on the idea of how synapses connect um, nodes in our brain. That's why it's called neural network. Yeah. It is based off the idea of how we think that most of our thoughts happen in our brain. And what was the other one, autonomous learning? Um, autonomous, yeah. Yeah, um, pretty similar to machine learning. Some, some of these things have very slight differences that actually aren't going to matter too much in discussions today, um, sometimes that term might be used where a machine learning system can continue learning while it's behaving. Say like an autonomous vehicle, which we're gonna talk about later. If that can keep learning while it's driving around, as compared to you train it and then you let it go. Yep, okay. Yeah. Um, look, I wanna come back to this, but just I realize I've skipped over what I wanted to ask at the start, all of you is, what, what astounds you and fascinates you about this whole area? Is, this, is there an example of something where you think that is just amazing how they can do that? Vicky first. <laughs> 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 you know, I think, I think the most uh, interesting area for me is the relationships that humans form with forms of AI. So uh, if you're talking about astounding examples, it's when people sort of connect with someone who they know is like an AI therapist, for example, and, you know, will divulge their deepest sort of your issues or even, you know, even in a more sort of everyday level, the way that people relate to Siri and Alexa and start sort of personifying these systems. Okay. Sort of like, you know, asking Siri, do you love me? And then that sort of thing or a little bit. Yeah. Like it's the sort of thing that maybe starts out as a joke, but you know, but it, it kind of progresses to, to seem normal as Tanya pointed out before, you know, things quite quickly normalize for us. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, what, the rest of you. Do you like a good marking system to come out to? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I find it a fascinating question because uh, just reflecting on what we've already said, I probably think that some of the things that are most uh, incredible about this world are things that I now take for granted. So things that I don't even notice because they're just part of the fabric of my life every day. Um, so I could probably go through and pick apart what some of those things are. But the, the rate at which we have integrated this these technolo technological steps into just everyday routines, like we said, um, that's a remarkable thing, I think. Yeah. Just the just the the quick, broad scale and deep adoption. Yeah. That, that that for me is a big thing. Okay. 
for me, especially working in the field, um, and also trying not to echo, echo the answers already, because I do love how we're adapting and how it's affecting human lives directly. But I'm always amazed at how fast this field is changing. I've had friends do PhDs in chemistry that can do six years at university, and no one's threatening their research field. But then people next door have to change their research field every six months. Yeah. They, they start a PhD well, thing. This would be do. a nightmare for a person yeah. in a doctorate. Yeah, because yeah, each one of these people is competing with six people at Google and then another yeah. six people or seven people at Facebook or whatever like that. Um, so they have to keep changing their, their field or publish something very draft before the other people can. Um, but yeah, like, so I, I started at the Institute for Machine Learning two years ago and what was state of art back then is now old news. There's no use talking about it. I mean, you can apply it to, it's great for applications and businesses and so on, but for research, it's gone. Yeah. Like there's people next door working out that are already doing this actually, you know, predicting the next frame in a movie, on and on. Like you play part of a movie to it, and it'll it'll predict the rest of the movie out. That yeah. sort of thing. Like it's like I'd never even thought of wanting to know that you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. You could just watch the movie, right? <laughs> the thing that really amazes me is the opportunity. So in the in the autonomous vehicle space or the automated vehicle space. You know, we could be thinking about people who uh, have vision impairments, have mobility impairments, have uh, intellectual uh, impairments, who could be independent for the first time in their lives because of yeah. technology. Yep. We could be thinking about people who cannot afford to pay to see a lawyer using uh, prediction tools right now that are available 24-7 for free that they can access in their pyjamas at 11.30 at night that can give them a better indication of what they're likely to get if their relationship breaks down than a human lawyer. So we already have that system here in South Australia. It's recently been developed called Amica um, and it was, that was led by a Legal Services Commission. Now, the why, why I say the indication is better than a lawyer is because not only do they rely now on what is in the brain of an individual lawyer, which is based on have they read all the cases, but because the data set is so much broader than any human could access and includes not only the reported decisions, but all of the consent orders that the court has that no human lawyer would ever have access to, you can get a really good prediction of what your property settlement might be for nothing. As opposed to spending mm. five, 10, 15, 20, 100,000 dollars. So in terms of opportunity now, I think we can use technology to create access, to create justice, to create um, availability of information in ways that it never has been before. But as someone who looks at this through a legal lens, I always immediately ask, who wins, who loses? How do we put a framework around this that protects people who are vulnerable while still encouraging opportunity and supporting, as Australians, supporting the Australian economy to make the most of these opportunities? Because if, if I think about uh, organisations that are putting these new tools into the wild, they want to know that they have um, 
clear lines of authority and liability and they want to know who's going to come after them if something goes wrong and how they can limit that liability and how they can manage risk. Mm. So for me it's... And do you have a group of lawyers coming behind quite worried about all this? Um, yes and no. Yep. So, you know, I would say, I would say that um, we now have a, an opportunity in my discipline to think really differently about what legal services are like. We have an opportunity to think really differently about how legal services are provided. And we have an opportunity to think really differently about people, at, about empowering people in our community with knowledge about the law, with access to accurate information about the law, and access to effective, fast, accurate ways of resolving your disputes. Why wouldn't you want to pursue these issues? Okay, okay. So it's quite empowering in some ways, isn't it? Can be. Yeah. Can be. For some and then others who don't want to adopt. Um, maybe not so good. Um, all right, look, I'll, let me come back to a question for you, Luke. Um, you mentioned to me uh, when we got together for a coffee about GPT-3, and uh, so I went away and had a little scurry around, looked at that, and was fascinated. And we've got a slide up here. Basically, it's it's a model. Uh, it's a model that's that only came out in the pandemic last year in May, and from what I understand, there are they they went from about April. They had seventeen thousand parameters, I think, that they could basically operate this artificial intelligence on. And then they went kapow, went up to 175,000 parameters. So I'm, I'm imagining for me that's like um, 175,000 synapses that are sort of the way your brain works. So what, what is the capacity of this GPT-3? What, what, give, give us an example of how it works. Well, actually, a great example is the example Tanya just gave of the ability to, you know, process. I think just for uh, just quickly, the NLP up there at the top of the graph that stands for Natural Language Processing, by the way. So, as we're talking about before, narrow AI, GPT-3 is very focused on reading text. Um, that's what it does. It does it very, very well. Um, GPT-2 actually this. this Best example to jump from is that GPT-2 to GPT-3, 1,500 to 175,000 parameters. Parameters are basically um, the types of data that it will look at. For example, like if I was looking at financial markets every five minutes or something like that, you'd look at what the price was at the start of that five minutes, price at the end, you know, um, moving averages, things like that. Those are three parameters. Let's think of it that way. Or three features, um, different things to look at. Um, some exa another other examples of what GPT-3 can do, um, if you get a license for this and you want to make a website, you could just write in there plain language like we're talking right now, just in a text box saying, I want a website that contains pictures of plants, five red buttons at the top, um, one button redirects to here, like in exactly the words I'm saying, and it will produce HTML code that does exactly that, right? Um, yeah, same thing. As we're talking about natural language is exactly the way we talk, um, no matter what language we're talking about, uh, English, Chinese, and so on. Um, this should work on most of those. Um, if you put into uh, this, this same thing, you don't have to retrain it as well, because this has been trained on all these different types of um, natural language data as well. 
everything from those, um, those pieces of code, those um, legal documents, technical reports, anything they could find really, any piece of writing they could find, they trained it on. So she put in saying, my landlord isn't doing this for me um, and I would like to get this type of settlement, whatever. It'll produce a legal, it can produce a legal document from the same model that produced that, that HTML code for you. Um, if you're saying, I did an experiment in the lab and I put, got these results and I expected these results, it can produce a technical report that does the same thing. And I think you said to me, you can move to music and create. Yes. Um, have, I think there has been a look at that because you can transcribe those things in a sense to similar data to, um, to natural language in a sense that, um, you know, a paragraph at the end, a paragraph or at the start of a book and at the end of a book, whatever like that, can be looked at the same way as um, the start of the end of a piece of music, the jumps up and down between and like a, um, a tremolo and all these different things are just different parameters really looking at. Wow. Um, so the, as far as I know, GPT-3 runs on what's, well, getting into the, the weeds of it now, but runs on a model called a transformer. Um, a transformer is why this is suddenly so amazing. It's Previously, you used something called a recurrent neural network, which has a very short-term memory. You jumped up to something called a, lo a long, short-term memory neural network, which has a slightly longer memory. And then this transformer has this amazing ability to have short, medium, long-term memory, so it keeps context clo in close, like up close to where you're still looking at, which the recurrent neural network, you read halfway through a sentence, and then it takes the last three words, and it makes a new topic from that, takes the last three words, makes a new topic from that, and a sentence will go nowhere. This thing can write a whole book without losing track of what it was talking about, last paragraph, last chapter, whatever like that. Okay. And you can look at music in the same way as you can look at text for that sort of thing, yeah. Okay. How, how are we going here? We, we, we on board? <laughs> Please just stick your hand up if I'm talking too nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, here's the question. Yeah, go on, yeah. sorry, Vicky. Luke, can you just sort of explain, you know, that is starting in some ways to sound a little closer to an AGI, right? Although, it, you know, it's clearly not. So can you explain how that is still very much narrow GI, even though it seems so express, you know, so extensive and, and multifunctional? Yeah, Luke. Explain <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, as we look at it, this is why we were talking about definitions changing before as well. Um, definitions of intelligence are changing too. Yeah. GPT-3 could still not look at pictures. Unless you start changing those pictures into some way converting that data to look at it like a word, in a sense. If you t turned every RGB, possible combination of RGB values into a indiv individual words, I'm sure it could start doing that as well. But what I was talking about earlier, where we have all these different types of models, like a, do it again, but a convolutional neural network is great at looking at images. A current neural network is great for short-term um, sort of stochastic data and so like that. GPT-3 is a particular transformer, and yes, if we kept training that on more and more types of data that it specializes in, like that stochastic data, um, non-image based, we could probably trick a lot of us, and if you actually start using it, it probably will make you think it's real. Um, part of the reason I compare to GPT-2 is because it was its predecessor, and there is also a, um, a tool out there, feel free to check it out in the break, it's called Talk to Transformer. Um, just Google it and a little, you can go to the website, it has a little text box that comes up. You give it a sentence starter and it will give you a pretty damn good um, story basically started from what you said. Um, if you write it like a story, like a, like a start of a sentence, like an open quotation mark, 
oh, I can't believe you did this or that, whatever, it'll continue like a story. If you write it like a technical report or a politician's announcement or something like that, it'll continue it like that. And you might not be amazingly impressed by GPT-2. I mean, just look at the graph. You will probably be convinced this, that it is intelligent by looking at that. Um, it's probably people, everyone in this room, I think, would probably think, would probably agree it is intelligent. It's the nerds next door who are saying, no, it's not still intelligent. It's still just maths. It's just OK, like, so can, yeah. Vicky, do you mind if I ask then, what, what, what do each of you think in terms of when are we going to get to that point where it is human intelligence or it surpasses human intelligence, which I think is called the AI singularity. What do you think? Well, you know, first I think we need to figure out the problem of human consciousness. Like, you know, philosophers of mine are still trying to nail that one and that's been going on for, for a long time yet. So, I mean, is this something that we can just look at phenomenology? phenomenologically and say, you know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, is that enough? Like, yeah. So, yeah, I, I find it really hard to articulate a, a barrier that AI has to clear to be considered intelligent or conscious when we can't define what that actually is in humans. Yeah. And, and if I can chuck onto that, I mean, there's another part to that um, conversation. I think what Vicky says is exactly right. But we we run the risk sometimes in these conversations of sliding into thinking that all that constitutes a human is their intellect. Mm. So once a machine hits this ability to learn and know and process, and then it's a human. And I think, well, that's a very reductionistic view of humans, and it's a it's a kind of an insulting view in some ways because uh, the reality is, you know, to speak plainly, there are some human beings who aren't particularly intelligent. Um, <laughs> And sorry, None of the and Bible College, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm speaking from personal experience. But look, let's let's argue by extremes. Uh, you, you you take the classic kind of example of someone with severe mental disability. Are you about to call them less human? Say, you know, my my um, smartphone can do better sums than you, so it's more human than you. So I think it's um, I think Vicky's point is an excellent one. That is, where is this line we cross that says you now have human level intellect, whatever we're calling intellect, but I want to distinguish human level intellect from humanity and yep. say they are different things. Because already, so much of these things can do, I mean, my pocket calculator on my phone can do maths significantly better than me. That already exists. That's mm. old news. Um, in fact, most of what we take as everyday AI now uh, can do a whole lot of stuff far better than I can. Uh, and we've heard about it in the, in the law recently, but actually it's all around us all the time. Um, so that's fine, and I think that in some ways, praise God, there's, there's some brilliant advancements we have here. But it's a different question to does this make something human? There's more to humans than just the mind. Okay, I'm, I'm running ahead of myself in my head here, but have you two got anything else you want to add into that about when are we going to get to a point? Uh, I'm not going to make a conjecture myself, um, but in terms of timelines, just for context for everyone, nearly every time you read anything about experts in the field are thinking that this is going to happen at this time, you can almost, almost nearly almost halve that every time. Um, so I'm not going to say AGI is going to be around next year, but maybe. Yeah. So oh. Luke, although, <laughs> although, Luke, when I first started in the whole sort of autonomous vehicle space, People were saying, oh, yeah, we're going to have fully autonomous vehicles on the road by 2019. Well, we don't. 
you know, and so, and, and that's getting pushed out and pushed out and pushed out. And recently with the, with the real focus to moving to electric vehicles, we've seen migration of funding from the AV research space to the electric vehicles research space because there are other imperatives for us as a planet to deal with, you know, climate change is, is a pressing issue for us. And so, and so some things happen faster, some things are predicted to happen and then take a lot longer and research and funding and all sorts of other priorities shift. And so, you know, that's an interesting space as well. Yeah. So what I would uh, underline there is um, autonomous vehicles aren't, so autonomous vehicles are an application of AI. So the AGI part would come further back I would say, than the application. I would like to make a distinction between that AI singularity and AGI as well. Um, they're yeah. not necessarily the same thing. Uh, the AI singularity, or uh, originally termed the technological singularity, is the point where technology starts developing at a pace that outstrips the ability for us to keep up. Yeah. Um, I might even argue that for a lot of us, that's already happened. Mm. Um, In how, some areas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many of us get to have I'm a say? I'm sure it has. But I mean, yeah. I mean how, how many of us get to have a say in what Facebook is working on right now, what their AI does and so on? We're not getting to have input to that. Yeah. So to us, that's a singularity, isn't it? Like it's, we don't get to have a say at the pace that that is evolving. Um, but then AGI, um, you know, doesn't, that being developed and us using that on a website, whatever like that, isn't going to have the same Severity, uh, oh, it is probably, but once it happens, you know, a private company will just release it as compared to autonomous vehicles, which do have to be highly regulated, will be replacing a current, uh, like a current market like cars with a high cost for it coming in. Um, there's a lot more to it than just the AI component. Yes. Um, so yes. AGI, I, I would view as once that happens, there's quite a few roadblocks. Once it gets to that, there's quite a few roadblocks for us to actually get to see it, whether it's going to be a problem or anything that's, that's a whole different thing, but um, we'd probably get to see AGI before it actually impacts our lives. Okay. Look, two, two quick questions. Um, this, this is a quick... No, look, I think we'll leave this. Uh, we're going to do a little clip, but I think we'll leave that for the tech person, um, if that's okay. Um, just the, I, I watched a little um, podcast with Nick Bostrom, um, who's from Oxford's Future... Uh, Future of hum Humanity Institute, um, and he says sometimes the human questions get lost in the pursuit of new technology. So, it's, so wh what happens to human beings in the pursuit of AI? Like I can see the positive thing with you know suddenly you're liberated and you actually understand the law and can actually speak for yourself by using technology, but. What happens to human beings in the pursuit of AI? Do you think there are any things we need to flag or be careful about? Um, I, think this, uh, I think this is really uh, one of those examples of this is the same question being asked, mm. that's been asked in the past. Yep. What happens to hunter-gatherers in the wave of the agricultural revolution? Yep. What happens to a feudal society or post-feudal in the age of the industrial revolution? Uh, and, and so it goes on. What happens in the communications revolution? Um, there's, there's always a question, and humans have always asked, with any step forward uh, in technology and in our capacities to do things, uh, who's going to win, who's going to lose? Mm -hmm. um, some people will see, look, we're moving forward in great leaps and bounds. 
there tends to always be some people who don't enjoy the benefits of that, or at least not at first. Uh, and so the, the question, as I say, is not a new question, but it's that perennial question of uh, what do we do as a human culture, as a human society, to look to the weakest, the lowest, the poorest, the loneliest, uh, and not just say, because someone's advanced five streets ahead, we're all five streets ahead. Now, I, I think we want to be careful. We don't want to become, you know, sort of naysayers and uh, feel like uh, you don't want to be that sort of stick in the mud who says, oh, any change is, you know, it used to be better in the old yeah, days. Go and, go and, and, uh, and burn the woolen mills so we can go back to doing it. Yes, yes, you don't want to be the Luddites and all that sort of stuff. So, so you, you don't want to have that negative view because I, I think human beings aren't like that. We, we, we do move forward. We do want to keep going to what's next and a lot of that is for human benefit. But you just have to have both eyes open. Uh, one eye to the future and the things you're achieving and accomplishing and who that's benefiting and one eye to who this might cost, how we can still love them, care for them, value them and not just see them as collateral damage. I mean, one of the stories I hear, you guys might know better than me, is in Silicon Valley in the US uh, where you have, you know, well, I don't know what the stat is, but more millionaires per square inch than anyone else on earth because people are, uh, all these startup companies, new tech and so on, but people I know who visited in recent years say the poverty on the streets keeps increasing. You know, outside your, I don't know which companies are headquartered there, but outside all these tech firms, these startups, these people are pushing the world forward, you've got more people out the front rattling a can um, because they're being left behind. Now, I don't know exactly what the correlation is there, but it's a, it's a good image. It's a powerful juxtaposition uh, to be aware of. So I think in the answer to the question, I, I think it's, it's no different to any other uh, move forward in human society and human technology. Um, and it actually requires part of that human dimension of us to be looking out for uh, fellow human beings uh, who perhaps might not be benefiting in the same way. Can I, can I agree with you and disagree with you? So I agree with you that it's, um, in one sense, it's no different to any of the other changes that have happened in human history. But I think there is a very significant difference and that's scalability. So in the past, if I was the bespoke weaver in my little village somewhere in the UK, um, making my living from piecework that I was creating by hand, and then the factories came, um, the amount of output of that factory was still related to the humans that were working there. It came faster, it, came, it was potentially more accurate, and they operated around you know, the clock, etc. But now, we are looking at outputs that are different because they are exponential. And so when you say that there's uh, a greater growth in poverty in what might be one of the richest uh, parts of the US, that's a reflection of that because now we have the capacity for very few people to have access to large amounts of data that impact enormous amounts of people and can make them enormous amounts of money. And so um, what that scalability does, we're going from artisanal to a factory culture to now a digital scalable culture, which means that there is exponential growth, exponential capacity for fewer and fewer and fewer people. And so, um, that potentially is a real issue. Um, 
And also, I'd, I'd say one other thing, just in relation to your comments before, that yes, these are the same issues that we have encountered over and over and over again. And I'll, I'll give you an example now of, um, of a tool that is used in the US and the UK and some other jurisdictions around the world to assess the risks of recidivism for people who have been either uh, arrested and are seeking bail or who've been convicted of an offence. Now, historically judges, human beings have done that. And there's a whole lot of literature out there about systemic bias against particular people in our community, how police arrest some people in our community more than others, etc., cetera, uh, on the basis of uh, race, of age, you know, et cetera. What is happening now, though, is we're having computer scores about predictions of recidivism based on large data sets that are commercial in confidence. And so without that transparency of data, it's really hard for anyone to determine whether this is just the usual bias or whether that bias now has been magnified because the different data sets that are all inputting into that final score about how likely you are to commit a crime if you're released um, are compounding each other. And uh, a few years ago in 2016, ProPublica did a huge investigative uh, report into um, the piece of software called Compass in the US. And what they could uh, identify as part of that report was there was no data set that was race, right? There was no data set that was race, but there were a whole lot of other data sets that effectively acted as proxies for race because of systemic injustice in our community. And when you put all of those data sets into that mix, um, then what happened was that an African-American person would be assessed as having a much higher score of recidivism, even though when you looked retrospectively back at the data, they had in fact a less chance, they had not um, uh, committed further offences. And so there was this systemic discrimination that already existed. So nothing new there. There yeah. was already discrimination. So it's basically existed, magnified. But it's magnified. Of, it. Yeah, okay. Um, we, we might take a break, but just before. You've been sitting there in Queensland at home there listening to some of this. Anything you want to finish with, Vicky? Yeah, I just want to just build on what Tanya and Tim were saying there in that this idea of what happens to humans in the pursuit of AI development, there's this real risk of sort of flattening out human difference and all of these sort of um, uneven impacts really stem from from the questions of well, what instantiation of a human is AI trying to approximate or overtake? Like, What's the model? What's the, the prototype? And there's the danger, I think, that if we're not sort of critical about that and questioning that, that it, it can just, just end up sort of reinscribing privileges and, and, and all of these things that Tanya just illustrated really well with the, the issue of recidivism. Okay, intriguing. So we're gonna come back and look at driverless car, uh, driverless cars technology, and then move on to some more existential questions. So take a break.
I hope part one of Better Than Us, The Impact of Artificial Intelligence has got you thinking. If that's what your appetite for more, try the second part of this release to listen to the audience Q&A. Thanks for listening to the 11th hour with Engage Work Faith.